if you are new this morning, uh, you have caught us in kind of a, an, an odd spot. We're at the very end of a five-week series called Family Discipleship, where we have been talking about our collective responsibility as a church to make disciples of the children and youth in this church. I introduced the series four weeks ago, and then over the past three weeks, I took a step away, went on vacation, and we had uh, people talk about mothering, fathering, and then our collective role as the community of God's people. This morning, I want to wrap up the series by talking about the indispensable role of bold intercessory prayer on behalf of our children. Bold intercessory prayer on behalf of our children. Let me begin by telling you two true stories. On May 21st, 1832, a young woman named Amelia gave birth to a baby boy. Having grown up as a pastor's kid herself, Amelia had a deep love for Jesus and always wanted a son that would grow up and also become a minister of the gospel. However, her baby boy turned into a young man who wanted nothing to do with the faith. Instead, he wanted everything to do with money, alcohol, and women. But Amelia's faith never wavered. She continued to feel this compulsion to pray for her boy. One day, it grew to such a degree that she determined to pray for her son fervently until God would save him. She would lock herself in a prayer closet for hours every day and pray that God would extend mercy to her son, who had now turned into a young man. One day, when he was a young man, her son walked into his father's library looking for a book. Instead, he stumbled on a different book called Poor Richard. He read the story and then came to these simple words, the finished work of Christ. In that very moment, he understood all that his mother had been telling him all these years. The Holy Spirit illuminated his eyes so that he could see. In that moment, he fell to his knees and pleaded with God to save him, and he committed his life to service in the Lord forever. He later learned that as he was on his knees praying for his own salvation, his mother was in the next room doing the same exact thing for him. This young man's name was Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor went on to be one of the most prolific missionaries the world has ever seen. He spent 51 years as a missionary to China, leading thousands to Christ. When Hudson Taylor left for China in 1853, his mother was there with him to say farewell. And his description of their parting ways tells of their love and of her earnest prayers. He wrote these words in his journals later. He said, My beloved, now sainted mother, had come to Liverpool to see me off. Never shall I forget that day. She sat by my side and joined in the last hymn we should sing together before parting. We knelt down and she prayed, the last mother's prayer I was to hear before leaving for China. Then notice was given that we must separate and we had to say goodbye, never expecting to meet on earth again. A mother interceding on behalf of her child, God hears her prayers and not only saves her son, but uses him to reach thousands of people with the good news of Jesus. Second story. As many of you know, we are part of a network of churches called the Harbor Network. And a little over a month ago, uh, we got notification that one of the pastors in our network's wife needed urgent prayer. Her name was Katie, is Katie, and her husband's name is Brett. After weeks of headaches and vertigo, Katie went in for some testing to figure out what was going on. And after several scans, doctors found a brain aneurysm. There was no time to waste. The doctors told her to come back the next morning for an emergency surgery. Surgically, they had two options. They would try the less invasive option first, but despite being less invasive, it was guaranteed to have complications according to the surgeon. Even if the surgery was successful, for example, Katie was guaranteed to lose hearing in her left ear and likely experience a stroke as a result. 
If, however, the less invasive surgery was unsuccessful, the surgeon would have to perform a much longer surgery on the spot with much more severe complications. So on the night before she went into surgery, hundreds, if not thousands of people began to pray. Brothers and sisters across the world started interceding on Katie's behalf, pleading with the Lord to heal her body. The next morning, her family gathered around her one last time. The nurses gave her anesthesia, and they rolled her into the OR for what was expected to be a three-hour surgery. One hour into that three-hour surgery, Brett gets a call from the surgeon telling him to come to the waiting room outside of the OR right away. He is, of course, expecting the worst. But when he gets there, the doctor says this, Brett, we don't know how to explain it, but when we got in there, like when we got in there, the aneurysm was gone, completely gone. It is not there anymore. And he showed him the scan. And he said, here was the before, here's the after. It was completely gone. Hundreds of brothers and sisters interceding on behalf of this sister, Katie. And she was instantaneously and miraculously healed. Bold intercessory prayer is vital to our faith. It is vital to our faith. Or as I heard another pastor say it, bold prayers honor God and God honors bold prayers. I love the way Eric Ludy describes prayer. He says this, prayer is not some BB gun that God has given us to try to shoo away raccoons in the night. Prayer is nuclear power, world renovating in its epic strength. When used according to the pattern of scripture, prayer alters history, alters the natural world and alters the human soul. Prayer is the catalyst behind everything godly taking place in the earth. And this one from Karl Barth. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32, I want to show you two Old Testament passages and three New Testament passages that speak to the power of intercessory prayer and to the command that Jesus gives us to pray to our Father boldly in prayer to ask for things. So we'll be in Exodus 32 to begin. As you're turning there, I want to make a quick note of clarification about prayer. When we talk about prayer, we must recognize that there are all different types of prayer. There are prayers of gratitude, prayers of lament, prayers of adoration, repentance, petition. There is singing prayer, listening prayer, contemplative prayer, imprecatory prayers. We could and perhaps will someday spend weeks on the topic of prayer, but for this morning, I want to talk about intercessory prayer. That is, standing in the gap between God and someone and praying on their behalf. Intercessory prayer. Okay, Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, we see the people of God turn from God and they start worshiping a golden calf. And no surprise here, it does not please the Lord. In fact, the text says that his wrath burns hot against them and he wants to destroy his people. But watch what happens in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? And whom have you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. In other words, here's what he says. God, don't do it, man. Like, don't do it. Remember the promise you made to your people. And then watch this in verse 14. And the Lord relented, and some of your translations might even say repented there, is a can of worms. 
from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, there are so many rabbit holes we could run down here, but here's, for now, here's what I want you to see. Moses stood in the gap between God's wrath and God's people, and he interceded on their behalf. God responded to his intercession. Turn to your right, Job 1. Job 1. The story of Job is well known because it focuses on this idea of suffering, and it often gets taught that way. But right at the beginning of the story, we read something really fascinating. In Job 1, we'll pick it up in verse 1, it says this, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now, let me paraphrase what the Bible just said there. Job was super rich, and his children partied hard. That's like the Cliff Notes version of verses 1 through 4. And they used their father's riches to sin greatly. You might think, well, Justin, it doesn't say that they sinned in those four verses. How do we know that they sinned during these parties? Well, we know this because of what the text goes on to say. Look at verse 5. When a period of feasting had run its course, like when they had partied, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified, meaning to be cleansed or to atone for their sins. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So after these benders, Job would make offerings and prayers to the Lord on behalf of his children. Like, I don't know what it actually looked like. I just imagine Job in the front yard just picking up like Bud Light and Truly cans and like throwing them in a bag. And he's just like (laughs) praying on behalf of his children. Like, God, do something. It probably didn't happen that way. That's just how my mind works. Listen to this. End of verse 5. I'm just coming back from vacation, guys. Give me a break. Okay. End of verse 5. Listen to this. This was Job's regular custom. He did this a lot, frequently, often. Fast forward to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus' disciples ask him to teach them about prayer. What's interesting about that, if you read the scriptures, is that prayer is the only thing his disciples ever asked him to teach them about. Think about that. Like, wrap your mind around that. These guys have had a front row seat to his entire ministry. They've seen Jesus turn water into wine. They've seen him raise a dead girl to life. They've seen him cast thousands of demons into a herd of pigs. Pigs who then ran off a cliff to their death. They've seen all of that, and prayer is what they asked Jesus to teach them. I don't know about you, but I would have been like, I want to to learn how to do that, like, bacon kamikaze thing that you just did with these pigs, because that was pretty impressive. But no, they say, teach us about prayer. So here in Luke 11, Jesus teaches them about how to pray, how to intercede. And then he gives this illustration. Look at verse five. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Now, hospitality in the first century was a huge deal. When you had a a visitor, it was very common to bring them in, to feed them, to make them feel at home. This guy, apparently, in the story, has a visitor, but he has no food or has no bread. So he has a decision to make. I can either be a bad host and not feed this guy, or I can be a bad neighbor and go borrow bread from my neighbor at midnight. 
That's his choice, and he decides for the latter. He goes to his neighbor's house at midnight to borrow bread, and he begins by saying, friend, because that's a good way to start when you're knocking on your neighbor's door at midnight. Friend, and he asks to borrow something. Look at verse 7. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now, in first century Palestine, this would have likely been a one-room home. Everyone is asleep together in the same room. Imagine the frustration this father must have felt. Moms in the room, have you ever had that moment where you like, work so hard to get your child down for a nap, and then someone rings the doorbell and wakes that child up? You know the rage you feel? <laughs> that's, that's what's happening here, okay? There's this anger. I tell you, look at verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, impudence simply means audacity or boldness. Some translations say relentlessly annoying. I love the NIV. It says shameless audacity. So the neighbor, he gets up to get bread, not because he's being a good neighbor, but because of the shameless audacity of the guy on the other side of the door. Look at verse 9. And I tell you, I tell you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. So Jesus here, he turns the parable on his listeners, and he says to them, he says to you, says to me, you should ask, you should seek, you should knock. You should have the shameless audacity to go to your father in prayer. You should have that kind of boldness with the God of all creation. But why? How? Verse 10. Here's why. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be open. Here's why it's okay to ask God for things. Because he cares about you. Because he hears you. And because he responds to you. That's why. Turn to your right. Again, Luke 18. Luke 18. Jesus, again, teaching on the audacity of prayer. We read another parable. He says this, verse 1, And he, this is Luke writing, And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Now, stop there for just a second. This is really fascinating. Oftentimes, Jesus speaks in parables, and then we aren't given help interpreting said parable. Jesus will just say something, tell a story that's somewhat confusing. His disciples are like trying to figure it out, and then he just goes, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he walks away. But Luke does us a favor in that he interprets the parable for us. He tells us in a very direct way, right at the beginning, what the point of the parable is. Look at it again in verse 1. He told them the parable to the effect or so that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. So this parable that Jesus is about to tell us is about the importance of bold, persistent, enduring prayer. Here's the parable, verse 2. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So here's the first character in the story. A judge who does not fear God, does not respect people. Now, that is not a great way to be introduced by Jesus. One of the first men I met when I moved to Hillsborough was a local judge. And this man had a great reputation in the city. He was kind and compassionate, and he loved Jesus. But this judge in this story, he's the opposite of that. No, no good reputation. He does not respect humanity. He does not fear God. Jesus is trying to paint a picture of how awful this judge is. Verse 3, here's another character in the story. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him, to the judge, saying, give me justice against my adversary. 
Now, this woman, she has nothing, and she has likely been wronged. Life has not been kind to her. And day after day, she keeps going to this unrighteous judge and pleading for justice. So how will this judge respond? A judge who, by the way, does not care about what God thinks and has no compassion for people. Well, let's see, verse 4. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. In the original language, this phrase, so that she will not beat me down, it's actually a figure of speech, so it could be more literally translated, so that she won't beat me black and blue. (laughs) So the judge, he gives in to her request and grants her justice. He rules in her favor, and then the parable's over. But Jesus isn't done. He now tells us what he means by the parable. Verse 6, the Lord said to those gathered, the Lord said to you, to me, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And he's going to use this lesser to greater Hebrew reasoning tool. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Verse 7. Will not God, the righteous one, the one who created you, the one who loves you, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? And the answer is, of course he will. Of course he will. Will he delay long over them? No, no way. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. He will do it and he will do it quickly. That is a promise from Jesus. Let me show you one more, John chapter 14. John chapter 14, just really quickly. Jesus speaking here, it's really straightforward. I won't unpack it a ton. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now listen to this, verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you ask anything, he will do it. That's what Jesus says. Now, the question that we have to ask is, so what? What does this mean for us? What do we do do with this? I mean, the scriptures paint a pretty clear picture of what bold intercessory prayer looks like, but what do we do with it? Here's what I would suggest to you. If we are going to commit ourselves as a church to family discipleship, like really commit ourselves, then we must get this right. We must find out on behalf of our children what Jesus meant when he said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Maybe I can explain it like this. Uh, Every doctoral student faces the same dilemma when they begin writing their dissertation. And that dilemma is this. What do I possibly write about? Because in theory, you're supposed to write about something that has not been studied much, or at least something that is still a mystery to most people. But as Solomon put it in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. So just when you think you've dialed in a topic, you realize somebody already wrote about that topic and you have to start all over. In 1952, there was a young doctoral student at Princeton University who was beginning this process of trying to figure out what to write about in his dissertation. So he approached his professor, a guest lecturer that semester, named Albert Einstein. You may have heard of him. He was feeling frustrated about what to write about, and he went to Albert Einstein, and he said, what original dissertation topic is possibly left? What could I write about that hasn't been explored at length? And here's what Einstein said to the young student. Find out about prayer. 
Find out about prayer. Someone must find out about prayer. And so that is my challenge to us as we wrap up this entire series, to find out about prayer. Brothers and sisters, we must find out about prayer. What if we became a people who prayed, like legitimately prayed for the children of this church? What if we became a people who regularly interceded on behalf of these children who run through our hallways and grab those donuts week after week? What if we stood in the gap between our children and God and we pleaded for God to save them and have mercy on them? And what if we didn't just pray safe, predictable prayers for their safety and salvation? What if we prayed specific, bold prayers for their future? Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? Like, I think we, we all hear that and we go, well, of course. Who wouldn't want to be a part of a church that prays for its children? Who wouldn't want to raise their children in a church of people who are praying for their kids? And the tension in that is this. And it's a tension that's been lurking in the room since the moment I introduced the topic of today's sermon. The tension is this. Does prayer actually work? Does it actually work? I mean, I know we ought to do it, and I'm going to do it. But does it actually have any impact? Because although there are a few saints in here who probably believe it works, my guess is the majority of people in the room are like me. You live somewhere between inspiration and skepticism. You live somewhere between feeling inspired by these stories of answered prayer and skepticism, wondering if your prayers actually matter. Like you hear the stories I told at the beginning about a mother who prays for her child that has gone wayward, who comes back to the Lord and becomes a missionary. You hear the story about us praying for our sister Katie and you think, well, that's great for that mom. That's great for Brett and Katie. It's very inspirational, but Justin, what about me? Because I've prayed for healing and it didn't happen. I've petitioned before God and it's silence on the other end of the line. I've prayed for my children, Justin, but my children are grown. Our nest is empty and our children are not following the Lord now. So what about me? A few weeks ago, I was standing out in the lobby And I was talking with a woman in our church who, by any accounts, is an incredibly godly woman who has labored well to raise her children in the Lord. And I was telling this woman about this particular sermon. I was writing it that week, preparing to go on vacation. And I was telling her about this sermon, and she very candidly said, Justin, I'll be honest, this is a hard one for me because I did pray for my kids. In fact, I prayed a lot for them. And they've all launched, and it's not looking great. And then she paused, and I just sat there in a pastoral moment trying to discern what to say. And before I could speak, she spoke up and she said this, but I'll keep praying. I mean, that is the point, right? And I would say to you, if you feel the same, if you feel stuck between inspiration and skepticism to keep praying, never lose heart. That is, after all, the point of the parable of Jesus in Luke 18. Always pray, never lose heart. So brother or sister, do you feel inadequate in your parenting ability? Always pray, never lose heart. Does your child have special needs that make life more challenging? Do you feel as if no other parent in this room understands what your life is like parenting a child with special needs? Does showing up at church on Sunday feel terrifying because you don't know how your child is going to act in our children's ministry? Always pray, never lose heart. Does your child ever do something? And I'm not being funny here, I'm being serious. Does your child ever do something that makes you fear for your safety? 
fear for your child's safety? Have you ever had to restrain your child for their safety or yours? Always pray, never lose heart. Do you ever look at your child's behavior at eight, nine, 10 years old and then look into their future and get legitimately worried about the adult they are going to become? Always pray, never lose heart. Are you a single parent struggling to make ends meet, wrestling with feelings of loneliness, wishing you had a partner to parent with each and every day? Always pray, never lose heart. Do you have a teenager that has walked away from the Lord, abandoning everything that you have worked so hard to instill in them? Always pray, never lose heart. Has your adult child continued to make decisions that are having long-term and at times permanent negative effects on their life? Have you had to sit across from your adult child while they told you that everything you taught them as a child was wrong? Always pray, never lose heart. Here's my point. I know that there are thousands of reasons why we might push back against a sermon on intercessory prayer. And I get it. But what if, what if instead of pushing back, we just pushed through all of the objections and we actually did it? What if instead of raising objections to prayer and going, but what about And what about this story or that story? What if we just trusted Jesus when he said that God hears our prayers and he cares deeply about our concerns? What if we had the same kind of shameless audacity to ask God to save our children? What if we believed Jesus when he said that if we ask anything in his name, he will actually do it? What if we became a people who took God at his word and we prayed for our children often? What if? Let me tell you a story that summarizes my hope for this church family. On October 30th, 2019, I got a phone call from a friend that would lead to a very formative moment in my life as a man and as a father. On the other end of the line was Beth, our administrative assistant. Her voice was shaking, and through tears, she said these words. Can you come to the hospital right away? I don't think he's gonna make it through the day. The man that she was talking about was her father, Brent. And several months prior, Brent had been diagnosed with ALS and it had been progressing quickly. Her husband, Taylor, picked me up and we went straight to the hospital. We went right into Brent's room. And as he laid in the hospital bed, several of us stood around that room. Sue, who is his wife and part of our church now, was standing there. His children and their spouses There was a man standing in the room I did not recognize. Their pastor was in the room as well, and then me. And it was obvious to all of us gathered there that Brent was entering his final moments on earth. And so one by one, we all started praying. And the last person to pray was this man in the room that I didn't recognize, that I had never met before. And I struggle to find words to explain that moment. I've reflected on it for years now. And all I can say is that that moment was nothing short of holy. As that man began to pray, it felt as though everyone in the room was getting a chance to peer in on a sacred moment between two men. It was as if we were listening to a phone call that we weren't supposed to be a part of. After he said amen, we walked out of the room and we left just the immediate family in the room to say their goodbyes. And 
I was standing in the hallway with Taylor, Beth's husband, and I said, Taylor, like, who is that guy? Like, who, there was something so special about what I just witnessed, but I didn't understand what I had witnessed. I said, Taylor, who is that guy? And Taylor proceeded to tell me a story. That man's name is Dave. And Dave was one of Brent's best friends. And years ago, right after Beth was born, as young fathers, they began meeting weekly to pray for their children. So think about this. For the past 30 years, these two men would get together every Friday morning at 6 a.m. to pray for one another, to pray for their wives, and to pray for their children. So what we were witnessing in that moment was the culmination of 30 years of prayer. We were watching a friend pray for his friend for the final time before his friend's faith became sight and he stepped into the presence of Jesus. And so there in that hospital hallway, Taylor and I made a decision that we would pick up the baton and we would keep carrying it for each other and for our families. And so now, every Wednesday morning at 5 a.m., Taylor and I meet at our office and we pray. He usually gets there first. He makes coffee that's so strong it'll put hair on your chest. And then we share prayer requests. We journal. And then he prays for me and I pray for him. And then he prays for my wife and I pray for his. And then he prays for my children and I pray for his children. Now, does that guarantee that our children are going to grow up and live long, healthy lives and love and follow Jesus? Of course not. Of course not. But I refuse to be the type of man who sits by and does nothing on behalf of my children and of my wife. My hope is that we become a church full of Brents and Daves, that we become a church full of men who are willing to pray for their families regularly, and not just men, but women too. I long to see hundreds of young moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles gathering together to intercede on behalf of the children in this church. Here's my one application, my one challenge to you. Do it. Find a friend. Commit to them for life. And pray with them. Pray for them. Pray for their children. Pray for their spouse. Just do it. That's my hope, is that we would all be a part of this. Now, as we close and we prepare our minds and our hearts for the tables of communion, I want, I want to remind us of one final aspect about prayer that we cannot forget. Because if we forget this last point, our feeble attempts at prayer would be little more than religious duty or begrudging obedience. Here's what I mean. Jesus doesn't just command us to pray. He doesn't just expect us to pray. Jesus models prayer for us forever. Let me read you one last passage, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 says this, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives, listen, to make intercession for them. Did you catch it? Right now. Jesus is interceding on your behalf. 
as he commands us to always pray, he is sitting on his throne, always praying for us. As we come to the tables of communion, may we be reminded that we pray, not because in doing so God might be pleased in us. We pray to God because in Christ, God is already pleased in us. May we remember that as we take the bread in the cup, even now, even in this moment, no matter what you're going through, you can rest assured that Jesus is interceding on your behalf before the Father of love. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for hearing our prayers. God, I believe that you not only hear our prayers, but you care deeply about what we are going through. So God, I, I know that, especially on a day like Father's Day, this could hit differently for different people. But I pray that you would comfort and convict, that you would encourage and challenge. Lord, I pray for the men and the women in this room who hear a sermon like this, who hear a story like Brent and Dave's and feel inspired. I pray that they would lean into that, that they would just begin that process. Lord, we love you. You are so kind. You are so good to us. God, as we come to the tables again this week, would you remind us of your love for us? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.